Oh. Christmas is a great time, isn't it? Just neat to see God at work. Um, you guys go ahead and come on down. The welcome books are going to be passed out now. If you're here for the first time, uh, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Um, we're glad that you're here. Everybody here is going to go ahead and write their name and info and stuff down in the books. If you're, if you're here for the first time or if you're new and can fill that out, uh, we would love to just send a letter to you and say thanks for coming. That way we can stay in touch in the future as well. And, uh, and that would be great. In just a second, we're going to have a chance to give as well. And that's a cool thing. How many of you have given blood this morning? A few. Yeah, good, 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 good. Uh, more coming afterwards. Uh, just a, a neat chance to, to give. We'll, we'll talk about that again in a second. We got, uh, sometimes in the, in the office, we get interesting calls during the week. And, uh, we got, we got a fun call this week, um, from, Lori Lynn, uh, Terry and Lori Lynn do the cafe area, um, and, and Lori called to say, hey, my brother-in-law's coming to town this weekend, and he's going to be at church for service, and, and uh, he wants to know if, if, if we can communicate a message for him. And I said, well, what's that? And, and ultimately, I found out the story. Um, Mike Lynn, who was here for service, was diagnosed with cancer in March of uh, 2013, and he lives up in Petoskey, sent word down through, um, through Terry and, and Lynn uh, and Lori uh, and asked us as a church to pray for him. And a number of you I know did that. And, um, and he just wanted to come and say thanks. He is, has been cancer-free since September of last fall, which is a cool thing. And, um, and uh, he, he just wanted to thank God and thank the church for... Um, for the way that God has used you in that way. Cool, cool thing. Um, we start a new series today called Extravagant. I love the word extravagant. It's such an extravagant word, right? Um, uh, extravagant. Where, uh, over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about extravagant stuff, extravagant hope, the extravagant name of Jesus uh, in the next two weeks. On, on Christmas Eve, we're doing two services, and we're going to talk about the extravagant love of God. Uh, the services are at 4.30 and 6. I hope you'll be here and that that'll be a part of your Christmas celebration. That's going to be a cool thing. This whole concept of extravagant, doesn't that just look extravagant, that artwork up there, cool stuff? Um, I, I thought, what's the dictionary definition of the word extravagant? The dictionary definition is lacking restraint in spending money or using resources. Synonyms, wasteful, lavish, um, that's the, that's the number one definition. Sometimes do you feel extravagant at Christmas time with all of the stuff that you buy and all the trimming and all the stuff that goes on? Sometimes that's there. Um, one of the other definitions that I like a lot, particularly in the context of this series of messages is the definition that says exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate, exceeding what's reasonable or appropriate, absurd. Um, we serve an extravagant God. Uh, he, he exceeds anything that's reasonable or appropriate. He loves us in a way that's just beyond comprehension. His actions are beyond anything that we can really wrap our brains around. He is extravagant. All through this series, there's, there's kind of an inherent challenge to live with uh, extravagant generosity, 
Over the next four weeks, we'll talk about that a lot because it's kind of woven in to, to us imitating the nature of God and living with that extravagant generosity. Um, f- uh, close to 50 people were signed up to donate blood today in an act of extravagance. It's not costing them any money, but for many who have donated today, it's, it's, uh, it's a huge deal. It's overcoming fear. It's doing something that's in- incredibly uncomfortable. It's exceeding what's reasonable for when you come to church. Who comes to church to give blood? You know, that's not kind of a normal thing. It's absurd. And yet it's a chance to honor God, to give in a way that can make the difference between life and death for somebody here in mid-Michigan. It can make the difference in the life of a child at the Children's Hospital in Grand, Grand Rapids whose life is in critical need at this time. Extravagant generosity is is being shown through through what we're doing right now with the angel tree out out in the in the atrium. It's a crazy thing to think about buying a gift for a child whose mom or dad is in jail. Somebody that you don't know at all. That's that's crazy. It's extravagant. It's absurd. Um, last week I shared that that we have an opportunity to change a community uh, to change a community in Northwest Ecuador. This year by, by planning a church in partnership with Compassion International. It's a change that we'll have the opportunity to be a part of as we sponsor children there, as we go and visit in the future, as we um, write letters back and forth to the church, as we go to, on visits in order for that to happen. But if, if it is going to happen, it's going to take extravagant generosity on our parts, doing exceeding more than what's reasonable or appropriate, being absurd givers. I, I hope this past week you received a letter from me about that, um, encouraging you to be a part of this special year-end offering um, that, that we're going to take for that purpose. It's a, it's a real direct challenge that, you know, at the end of the year, lots of people are thinking, I need to, I need to give because of the whole tax thing. Where am I going to put my money? Again, I, I just want to say to you, I don't, have any, I don't have any misgivings at all about saying, you know what, none of the money is going to be spent here at North Point. It's all going to go to a place that's a place of extreme poverty, and it's going to have the ability to transform a community, to, to literally to save the lives of children there, and, uh, and to turn around that community with the presence of Jesus. Uh, it's, it's an incredible opportunity. I hope that you'll give extravagantly for that. Um, throughout this Christmas season, as you come in this week, as you see the slide each week, as you see the slides, the trees, as you're here to worship, I hope that you'll wake up every day and pray. I, I hope that you'll ask God, God, what's it mean for me to live with extravagance today? What's, what's that look like for me? Maybe it's to be extravagantly patient when you go to the mall or when you're out driving, to be extravagantly patient. Maybe it's to, be, to have an extravagant joy in your presence when everybody else is, is going crazy, all the stuff that's going, to really have this sense of joy that comes from the knowledge that God came to earth for us. And that extravagant joy permeates everything. Maybe it's, maybe it's to live a life of extravagant sacrifice. And this year maybe for the first time, to rather than having the focus be on you, to take some steps to sacrifice 
so that you can make a difference that lasts. Please pray that, that, that God would lead you to a place that your extravagance goes beyond the presents and decorations and celebrations that you have for you and your family or friends. And that you'll remember, as I said last week, Christmas is not your birthday. That that would get lived out in a, in a real practical way. I saw yesterday afternoon on Facebook a, a post here on, in DeWitt of a lady. I don't, I don't know who she is, but she talked about going to a Facebook yard sale to buy socks that she was going to give to a homeless ministry to, to help give socks to, to men who are homeless. And uh, so she went to this person's house to pick up the socks, told them what she was doing, and the, and the person who, had, who was selling the socks said, you know what, I'm not taking your money. You take the socks, put them in the hands of people who need them. This uh, a cool story. The lady said she went to Meyer then, and at Meyer she was buying some produce and some, and some food for a friend who's going through a divorce who doesn't have much. She saw somebody there. They got to talk, and she told, him, told her what she was doing. And this friend who didn't know the person going through the divorce said, here's some money. Use it for that woman who's in need. That extravagance, that absurdity, is what it's, that's what it's about to follow Jesus. It's, it's what it's about to live in a way that honors Jesus on a daily basis. When I was in first grade, my teacher's name was Mrs. Barber. I, I, I said first service with the teens who were down in that area. I said, you know what? I, I still can remember first grade, although vaguely, you know, a long, long time ago. Um, one of the things I remember about first grade is somewhere in the fall of first grade when I was, you know, five, six, seven, whatever that was, Mrs. Barber gave us a challenge. She challenged us um, to memorize the first 20 verses of Luke chapter two, the Christmas story in the King James version of the Bible. Now, now understand it was a different time, right? Um, it was a public school I went to. And I remember Mrs. Barber giving that challenge and thinking, I can do that. And so um, anytime I hear the Christmas story, even now, you know, decades later, a half century later, I hear the Christmas story in the language of the King James Version of Scripture. Um, sometimes I even hear Linus. <laughs> Lights, please. <laughs> and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when, Quirine, when Serenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. Also, and Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child... And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. I remember from way back then when I memorized that, there were several phrases from the King James English that stuck with me as this young boy. The beginning of Luke 2 when it says, and it, came, and it came to pass in those days that then the events began to unfold. And it came to pass in those days. Verse 6 said, said, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished. The days were accomplished that she should be delivered. I remember as a kid thinking, what's that mean? I understand now it meant that, you know, she had gone through the pregnancy. It was time for, for her to have this baby. But those words began to stick in my mind. As a young boy, I was struck with the sense of the timing of God. That Christmas arrived not randomly, but at just the right moment. The timing of God was an incredible thing. Uh, do you know what the most important thing is to a good joke? Timing. timing, that's right. That's right. It's timing. The most important thing about a good joke is timing because the timing brings in that, that uh, punchline in a way that surprises, that brings uh, a smile. The language of timing is found in Scripture often. There are phrases that, that say, in the fullness of time, when the days were accomplished, at just the right time. That concept is, is uh, summed up best in a letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia. Uh, it was a church of new believers, not Jewish believers, but Gentile believers, people who had come to know Jesus without the background and the context of the Jewish faith. About three-quarters of the way through the letter, Paul writes these words in Galatians, in, in Galatians chapter 4. When we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Because your sons, God has sent, us, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Daddy, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, the ESV says, when the fullness of time had come. There's this picture of God bringing things together at just the right time. The New International says, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. The Amplified um, fleshes that out even more. It says, but when in God's plan the proper time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the regulations of the law, so that he might redeem and liberate those who were under the law, that we who believe might be adopted as sons, as God's children, with all rights as fully grown members of a family. I want us to think this morning about the extravagant timing of God when the fullness of time had come. For, for hundreds of years, Bible scholars have discussed and written about that concept what was it that made the fullness of time come? What, what did that mean? 
It means that since the Garden of Eden, God has been preparing that he's been putting pieces in place so that things were just right for us to be able to receive his son. God was doing the background work, the work upstream to prepare the world for Jesus to come. Have you ever wondered why it took God so long? I did. I have. Scripture teaches that the Garden of Eden was a real place, right? That God created this real place, that Adam and Eve were real people who lived there. That the temptation to sin by the serpent that, that Eve succumbed to, was a, that that was a real event. Scripture then, then, then plays out that it took about 4,000 years from the time of the Garden of Eden to the, um, until the birth of Jesus, Why did God wait so long to redeem mankind? What were the things that he was waiting on before he could come to earth with a flesh and blood body? Why did it take so long for Genesis 3 to be fulfilled, for that sin problem in us to be resolved? I think there were were a number of things that God wanted to to put in place. The first thing that he really needed was a man uh, and a man of faith. He needed a man who could who could communicate God's nature to his children, ultimately to his descendants. And in that communication, that there would be this sense of who God was that would permeate their their entire clan and ultimately that it would become a nation. That man was Abraham. God needed a people that, that out of that people he could teach who he was and, and, um, and, and the critical problem that existed with sin. It was the Jewish nation that came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God needed that people, that nation, to have a clear understanding of, of, um, of sin, of what it did and how it caused separation. A clear understanding of atonement, what it meant for one person, one, uh, one animal to take on the sins of many. So that, so that the people could get that. God needed a backstory that would allow the coming of the Messiah to make sense. What, what was that backstory? What, what was the fullness of time that had come that led up to the birth of Jesus in, in Luke chapter 2? 300 years before Jesus was born, Alexander the Great came out of Greece and began to, to do battle after battle and ultimately to take over all of the known world. Alexander the Greek was, was probably one of the most incredible, probably the strongest military leader in history. He came in and conquered the entire world, but he didn't just leave a military occupation in each of the nations, in each of the people groups that he conquered. Alexander the Great had been um, tutored by Aristotle up until the time that he was 16. And so when Alexander the Great conquered a people, what he would do is bring in Greek leadership into that society. And he would begin to implement the Greek language for that to become the language of trade and of government. Um, he, he began to institute and implement Greek thought into every aspect of life. Greek, um, Greek music, Greek philosophy, a Greek thinking style. And over the next 200 years, the, all of those things that came as a result of Alexander the Great's influence worldwide began to be permeated in all of those cultures, all of those places across the world. So that when ultimately when Jesus was born, th- there was this sense of unity 
throughout the known world. About a hundred years before Jesus was born, the Romans conquered the Greeks. And when they did, when they conquered Greece, they took charge of the entire kingdom. So in a, in a very short period of time, everything that had been um, conquered by Greece was then taken over by Rome. And Rome took that kingdom that existed and began to build infrastructure and to be able to, and began to, to, to build up the society that, that, uh, that the foundation was there for. If you think back about what you learned, um, the Romans built the roads, right? You remember that phrase, all roads lead to Rome. The, there was this time period that began about the time of Jesus called Pax Romana, the Roman peace that existed all over the world. About 25 years before Jesus was born, Rome moved from a republic style of government to that of, of a dictator, to Caesar. And over the next several hundred years, there was this incredibly stable government that existed because of Rome, because Alexander the Great had paved the way for that. In the context of that historically, of what was going on geopolitically around the world, the the gospel came at a time that it could be spread throughout the entire world with very, very few obstacles probably better than any other time in history. The Roman roads made travel easy. The Koine language made, it was a common language throughout the kingdom. The Roman gods had begun to really kind of wane in influence. And the Jews were looking for a Messiah. The Jews had this sense because of the prophets that there was going to be one who would come who would save the people from their sins. They were anticipating that. Rome uh, Rome installed a governor named Herod the Great over Palestine. Herod the Great was a guy with with a huge ego that liked to build big, crazy things. And one of the things that he built, that he rebuilt, was the temple for the Jews. He did it because he was the governor of Palestine, and he did it really kind of as a gift to them. But when Herod rebuilt the temple, he created... The, the ability for the Jews to come together to sacrifice. He created a, a visual representation for the place where God could live in the Holy of Holies. He set the foundation up so that, they, that the Jews could come and make sacrifice in Jerusalem year after year after year for their sins. The Jews had a clear understanding of what it meant to be prophet, priest, and king. God put all of the pieces together so that the baby born in Bethlehem would grow up to be who would grow up to be the sacrificial lamb for all mankind that the world got that because of the Jews. What's your backstory this morning? What has God been doing upstream in your life to bring you to Christmas? 2015. What success have you experienced in your life in the past? What lessons have you learned? What struggles have you experienced that have prepared you for this moment in your life? Most of the time, the events in our life don't make a ton of sense to us at that time. They only make sense when we're able to look back at how they fit into God's story in our lives. Sometimes the most important parts of our backstory are times of crisis, times of failure, times of brokenness. From 2004 to 2010, 
much of uh, the United States was captured by a, by a television series called Lost. You remember Lost? Lost was all about backstory, right? If you remember Oceanic Flight 815 leaves Sydney, Australia, heads for Los Angeles, uh, stuff happens, the plane crashes, um, 70 survivors from this flight end up on an island. And for the next six seasons, every episode is filled with the backstory of one of those characters so that you can understand who they are and, and what gives their life meaning. There's the story of Kate, right? Who, her backstory initially is all about her arrest and her transport, her extradition back to the U.S. But ultimately you learn as the seasons um, uh, fall one on another that Kate's backstory is really about her response to seeing her mother abused by her stepfather. There's the story of Hurley, um, who, who has this past that's filled with being institutionalized for mental health issues. And, and Hurley feels incredibly unlucky, even though he's, he's chosen numbers that were given to him to play the lottery and, and wins the lottery and becomes incredibly rich. There's Charlie, this aging rock star, who's a has-been, who's addicted to drugs, whose band was a one-hit wonder that's, that's doing anything he can to kind of regain his self-respect. There's the story of Jack, whose backstory is, is, uh, is that he's this incredibly accomplished spinal surgeon. But even in all of his success, he has this shattered relationship with his alcoholic father. The backstory of each character is what gave context and meaning to the twists and turns of the plot each week, right? It helped the audience understand why a character responded in the way that they did. It gave meaning to the drama that they faced with each episode. Soon many of you will meet our new student life pastor and his wife for the first time, Jake and Ashley Howard. Jake's going to begin his ministry here on January 10th, but the backstory of how Jake and Ashley came to North Point is really a pretty incredible story. Jake's wife, Ashley, grew up in Lansing. She attended Michigan State University. Woohoo! Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Several years ago, Ashley's mom and dad, Tom and Pat Dunn, began to attend North Point Community Church. A year ago, not long after I started, Jake and Ashley came up to visit Ashley's mom and dad, Tom and Pat. Um, after the service, Jake came up to talk to me because he was an Ohio State fan. Uh, he just happened to be here on one of those rare Sundays that I mentioned the Ohio State University. <laughs> we quickly discovered that, uh, that they lived in a suburb of Cincinnati where I had had my first ministry when I was in my early 20s, that he loved Skyline Chili, that he loved Montgomery Ribs, um, that, that, that all kinds of things about Cincinnati, Jake was, Jake was a nut about, things that, that we knew and loved. He and Ashley had a room in their apartment in Cincinnati that was split right down the middle with Ohio State stuff on one side and Michigan State stuff on the other side. I liked him right away. <laughs> it was a really fun interaction that Sunday after church. It just, just a really cool thing. We, we talked to each other around the holidays when they came back up again that year. And, uh, and, and every time they'd come, we'd just have a chance to talk. When we made the decision in April to move Chris from a student life pastor to the pastor of Connections, Jake 
heard about it through his mother and father-in-law, Tom and Pat. Um, and Jake sent me a, a, a letter, a cover letter, and his resume and said, hey, would you consider me for, um, for student life pastor? At that point, we were looking internally here within North Point at, at a candidate. And, um, and so I sent him a letter back that said really kind of, hey, great to hear from you. Thanks, but no thanks. We're looking internally. And, um, and, and uh, boy, I appreciate you, but, but that's it. I'll keep your resume on file. You, you heard that before, right? Um, uh, talking to Tom and Pat probably six weeks later, and, and they told me that Jake and Ashley had bought a house in Mason. I was excited for them. That's cool. You know, they had decided that's where they were going to settle. It was great. About a month after that in July, um, we decided that we were going to launch, launch our national search um, for student life pastor. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and just make contact back with Jake. They bought a house. It's probably unlikely. And so in my email to him, I said, I know that this is probably not going to happen because you guys bought this house. But are you interested in having more conversation about potentially coming to North Point as student life pastor? And, and Jake responded in an interesting way. He said, he said yeah, I'd, I'd love to talk because you know what? If God's in this, the house is not going to be an issue. Um, so Jake went through the process. He went through the initial screening with our team. Uh, about 70 people went through the process. He filled out the first questionnaire, filled out the second questionnaire, did a Skype interview. Ultimately, our team said, we think Jake's the guy that's supposed to come. My concern, though, was this pesky house in Mason, Ohio. How do you buy a house and sell it a few months later and not take a uh, an incredible financial beating as a, as a young guy in his early 20s, his first house. When Jake and Ashley came for the weekend to experience North Point as a candidate, they kept flying, literally flying through each of the 10 different meetings that we had. I kept thinking, God, can you really sell his house? We were, we were praying like crazy. That weekend went great. We ultimately offered Jake the position and uh, a week later, he accepted the position and, and said, you know what, we're just going to trust God for the house. They began to get their house ready to sell. The week before Thanksgiving, on Monday morning, they put their house on the market and they drove then up to Lansing to spend Thanksgiving up here with Ashley's parents. Um, I needed to talk to Jake about a couple of things. So Tuesday afternoon, I call him on the phone. It's about five o'clock on Tuesday. I said, hey, Jake, how are you doing? And he said, hey, I'm doing great. I said, what's happening with the house? He said, well, we put it, um, we put it on the market yesterday morning, Monday morning. And um, before we left this morning, we had five or six showings scheduled for Monday and Tuesday. And I said, that's incredible. He said, you want to hear something more incredible? I said, what's that? He said, I just got off the phone with a realtor five minutes ago, and we have an offer on the house. And I said... Jake, you're kidding. He said, no. And you know what else? We're going to make money on the house. And I'm thinking, I can't, sometime I'll tell you the story of our process of selling houses, which is <laughs> just the opposite of that. We actually still have a house in Manassas, Virginia, if anyone is interested. <laughs> the cool thing about that story is the family that's buying Jake and Ashley's house is a family that's been trying to move into the Mason area for some time. 
they have gone, that they actually have put offers, I think, on at least three different houses, and every house that they found that they've wanted, um, the, either an offer has been accepted before they got to see the house, or they were outbid in the offer that they put on the house. So when they came to see Jake and Ashley's house at noon on that Tuesday, they said, this is the place we're moving, and in, literally in three hours, they had an offer to Jake and Ashley for their house for, uh, for a really, really fair price. Um, God had been working upstream in the lives of those people who bought Jake and Ashley's house that we don't even know that ultimately impacts things here at North Point. The backstory for each of us has been written in our past and it's being written even right now. Don't miss, don't miss this. The point of our backstory is not here on earth. It's not that we'll be in the perfect job. It's not that we'll have the perfect marriage. It's not that we'll be in the perfect financial position or that we'll, we'll have the perfect relationship with our kids. That's not the goal. That's a nice byproduct if it happens, but that's not the goal. The goal of our backstory is that we would have a relationship with Jesus both now and for eternity that would impact every aspect of our lives. That's it. That's the goal of our backstory, that we would live as sons and daughters of the king now and that we would gather around his throne in heaven. It's at that point that God's timing is complete. The timing of Jesus' birth had to seem crazy to Mary and Joseph. It had to feel bizarre to them. For Mary to become pregnant before she was married in a small town, it just had to feel wrong. It had to feel inconvenient. It had to feel awkward. It had to be just horrible timing. And when they received the news from the government that, that Caesar had said that, that the whole world should be taxed and that they had to make the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem, a trip of 80 miles by foot with Mary nine months pregnant, it wasn't just inconvenient. It was the worst timing imaginable. For them, they had to think, this is incredibly bad. Their family had to say, how, how could this, this get any worse? It didn't feel to them like God was with him, I'm sure. It may have even felt like God was out to get them. And yet God really did have everything under control. The census that forced them to Bethlehem, when Mary delivered there, the location of the birth of the baby Jesus would fulfill prophecy that had been made hundreds of years earlier. God's love, his interaction... His timing is perfect. Paul wrote in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. I love the game of chess. I learned how to play chess in junior high. It's a game of strategy. It's a game of timing. It's a game of sacrifice. Um, I don't play very much now. I don't play often at all. But I love the game of chess. Each piece is different, right? Some of the pieces um, move diagonally, the bishops. Some, the, the rooks, the castles, they go up and down sideways. Um, the, the, uh, the knights, the, 
they do this funny little L-shaped thing. Every piece is different. They, they can be used in different ways. And then there are the, the lowly pawns, right? That, that row of pawns that are there that, that really aren't worth much. They can only go one step at a time. But at the right time, at the right time, a pawn can be used to pin a queen and a rook and turn the game around completely. At the right time, a pawn can go to that last level and can become a queen. And what was an insignificant piece all of a sudden can become the most valuable piece on the board. At the right time, a pawn can trap a king and cause checkmate to win the game. It takes extravagant timing. What are the pieces that God has been putting in place in your life so that his extravagant timing can be seen, it can be realized, it can be fulfilled in your life this Christmas. You may feel today like a pawn in the game of life, but God has incredible plans for you in his time. Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent his son to redeem those under the law, that's us, so that we might receive adoption as sons. What relationships is God, are, are God calling you to redeem this year at Christmas that the timing is right for? What has God been preparing you for this Christmas to sense his presence in your life? Extravagant timing, when you really think about it, all comes down to the concept of trust, Right? Do we really trust that God knows what he's doing in our lives? Do we really trust that his timing is perfect? When I was learning how to play chess, the most difficult opponent for me to play was a person who knew very little about the strategy of chess. All they knew was how the pieces moved. It was impossible to play them to play them because there was no overwhelming strategy. You never knew what they were going to do. Every move that they made seemed random and and capricious. Here's the big question this morning. Do you believe that God has a plan and that his timing is a part of the plan? Or do you believe that God, like that novice chess player, is random and capricious? God has proven through the birth of Jesus that his timing is extravagant, that it's completely lacking restraint in using resources, that he exceeds what's reasonable or appropriate, that God's timing is absurd and we can trust him. Ephesians 3 says that God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. God's hand in our life is incredible. So the question is, do you trust him today? Do you trust God more than your possessions? Do you trust God more than your bank account? Do you trust God more than your own ability, more than your own intellect? Do you trust God with your life? And ultimately, do you trust God with your destiny? Because God wants to adopt you in to his family. Do you trust his timing? You know, 
um, in that scripture from Galatians chapter 4, it talks about the fullness of time preparing us for Jesus so that ultimately we could be adopted into God's family. This week I, I did some research, was, was reading. One of the things that I discovered was the Roman culture had some crazy things about, uh, some, some crazy um, values in terms of their family. A Roman dad or mom could do whatever they wanted with their kids. Their kids, their children were, were like a piece of property. They could abandon them. They could have them killed. They could kill them. And there were no repercussions at all by the law. But in the Roman culture, if a, if a Roman father chose to adopt a child, that changed everything. The adoption process was very involved. It involved a lot of money, a lot of preparation because the, the value of a son in the Roman culture was huge. So a Roman father could choose, I want this boy to be my heir. And as I understand it, the Roman law was such that when an adoption was complete, after all of the preparation, everything that had happened, when an adoption was complete, that adoption could never be severed. Once you were adopted into a family, you took the name of your father, you became his child. That could never be rescinded. So when Paul says, at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we could be adopted into his family, the church in Galatia got that in an incredible way. God has chosen us to be his children. He's chosen us to bear his image. He's chosen us to take um, his name and to wear it this Christmas, this day. Let's pray. God, my mind is just kind of spinning right now. Because when we start thinking about your timing in our life, floods of pictures come to mind, Lord. Times that you have been faithful in our lives when we didn't expect it. Times that you protected us. Times that you intervened in ways that we couldn't imagine. God, for all of us, there is this sense of how good you've been to us when we begin to look backwards at our backstory. God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust your timing, no matter what the circumstances. When things are a mess, when, when we're lost, God, help us to trust that you hold us in your hand. God, you're the God of extravagant timing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.